Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest tonight is Steve Bluestein from so many comedy specials and an author and original at the comedy store. I I can't believe I got this guy. Um, it's Steve Bluestein. How you doing, bud? I am great. How are you? Great. I'm going to start this off a little bit unusually because I do a lot of background on the people that I talk to, and I did a little bit on you that that surprised me a little bit so i watched first of all i watched the ron russell's drive-by which was an interview he did with you early in the pandemic you wouldn't consider it early by the time he did it but considering where we're at now it's early and you did a great job but you mentioned that the robe you were wearing during the interview was a j crew robe and i went into your youtube channel and found a youtube video from 2011 talking about a J Crew robe that looks like the same robe. Can you tell it me is. if that is the same robe? <laughs> it's exactly the same. Has anybody yeah. else made that connection? No one. Uh, <laughs> the thing is when I was working in when I was working in Vegas, my manager also managed Anthony Newley. And so he took me backstage to meet Anthony Newley, a bathrobe and matching, I thought that was the coolest thing I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I always wanted one. And then there I was in J. Crew, and there it was. And I bought it, and I'm never giving it up. <laughs> oh, it is, it is just new. I, I'm one of those anal retentive people that has 35 year old socks that look <laughs> brand new. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I got to say, when I saw that, I'm like, oh, man, that looks like the same robe. And it's nine years old, and yet there you are wearing it, and it looks like brand new. Oh, it was, and you're right. I was one of the original founding members of the Groundlings in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And Gary Austin, Gary Austin was in the Comedy Store Players, and I was also in the Comedy Store Players. And I said to Gary, is there a class that I can get into to hone up on improv? And he says, I'm starting one. So I joined that class. Mm -hmm. And in that class was Cindy Williams and, oh God, uh, I can't think of anybody. I'm so bad with names. Candy Clark mm -hmm. and a bunch, a bunch of people. And that class became the Groundlings. Now that you're frozen. Now, talking about being one of the founding members of the, of the Groundlings, your style of comedy is very in the moment and very improv inspired. And were you one of the first guys who really perfected the crowd work aspect of it? I, I can't take credit for that, but I certainly was in the first group that was doing it. I, I was in a show. Uh, in, at Caesar's Palace with Phyllis Diller and Pat Cooper. Yep. And in that show, which was really early on in my career, I was talking to the audience and Phyllis got me backstage one night and said, don't talk to the audience. <laughs> and I said, why? She said, comedians just don't do that. And I went, oh, okay. And I continued to talk to the audience because what had happened was I had been on the road for years and I was opening for Donna Summer at the MGM and right in the middle of my act, I stopped 
And I looked at the audience and I said, if I have to say these words one more time, I'm going to kill myself. Because two shows a night, seven nights a week, you and, and the show, you have to do 19 minutes and not 20 and not 18. Right. So the, it, ha, it has to be well scripted so that you, you're out on time. And I just stopped and I looked down at the guy and in, in, in sitting on the ring and I said, what do you do? It's got to be more interesting than this. And that's how I started working the crowd. And what happened over the years was I would have an hour and a half worth of material in my head. Mm -hmm. And I would talk to the audience and what do you do? You're a doctor. I do the doctor chunk. And then what do you do? I'm a nurse. I do the nurse chunk. So that every night the show was different. So you could see me five nights in a row and you'd never see the same show. Right. More importantly, I was kept amused. Mm -hmm. You know, I was no, I was no longer bored. And when it became fresh is when it became funny. And some of the things that I've seen, I watched a lot of video of you. Some of the things were not doctor and nurse. The dude that you called the whitest man you've ever seen and called him a grown up Opie, the way you were able to play off that and even do a callback on crowd work was just masterful. Are we still there? Are you there? Yeah, I lost you for a sec. I know. What do you have? Two tin cans and a string? What do you, what yeah. kind of setup do you have? There? I got I got fiber. Yeah. Now I have fiber too. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. why I'm right. That's why I'm regular. Um, <laughs> no, I have what were we talking about? Talking about the crowd work and the fact that you not only can do crowd work, but you were talking about the a doctor bit and a nurse bit. Oh, you, you no, talk I was talking about, I was on a, a clip, Make Me Laugh with Gary Shandling and Gallagher. Mm -hmm. And the woman who was in the seat who were trying to make laugh, in order to stop from laughing, she was doing the Lamaze blowing oh, you know, okay. exercise. Yeah. <laughs> so... I took her exercise and I did what's called the transformation. It's an improvisational technique. I took her, her, her blowing and I turned it into something else. And that changed, according to the producers, that changed the direction of the show from that moment on. Oh, really? Because no one had strayed from this to do it and as a matter of fact they used that episode to sell the show when it was put back on the air unfortunately they didn't ask me back on that show <laughs> but ah the wonders of are you gone yeah I, 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 I'm really surprised that we're losing each other I know where are you calling from? I'm in Indiana, but... Oh, another Indiana. I just did another interview. Let me take this phone, because this is my landline. So it shouldn't, there shouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't have any problem with anyone else who calls me. <laughs> but let me... Not that I want you to feel guilty or it's anything. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going into the guest room and see if that's better. Yeah, so far we're looking good. I think we're good. So as far as your style of comedy, I talk to a lot of people who write a lot, and I talk to a lot of people who work out stage, work out their stuff on stage a lot, but it seems to me that you never have the same show twice. Is that right? Never, ever. Yeah. That's And that's not because I'm trying to entertain the audience. It's because I was trying to entertain myself. Right. I have ADD, and I have to be entertained all the time but i could never write for myself sit down and write material for myself and then go on stage and do it mm -hmm. i had to it on stage in front of the audience mm -hmm. and even if it was an ad lib it stayed in every night it was locked into my memory mm -hmm. now i can write 
I write jokes for other people. I wrote for Joan Rivers. I wrote for Marilyn Michaels. I wrote for Liz Torres. I wrote for, she's so famous, I can't remember her name. Uh, wait, I can Roz Kind, Barbara Streisand's sister. Uh-huh. I, I, write, I wrote all those jokes. Uh, no problem. But for myself, I have to do it on stage. Uh-huh. So thinking about that, you had to go on stage quite a lot. Did you just walk in with a bunch of premises, or did you look at the audience and say, hey, this is what's going to work with these guys, or what? how well, did it work it, with you? It, it's interesting because I would never walk in, at, in my early years, I would never walk in with a bunch of premises. Mm-hmm. I would always look at the audience. And talk to the audience and get the material from talking to the audience. Mm. Today, I walk in with premises. Today, I I think, all right, I want to talk about getting older and I'll make notes, memory, this, that, and I'll put them on a stool and then I'll just riff off of that. Mm -hmm. But in the early days, it was strictly from talking to the audience. And obviously that worked for you. Did you ever did you ever go through just like terrible bombing sets doing that or did I never <laughs> The reason I never bombed was because I was so afraid of bombing uh-huh. that I did anything in my power. I, I would take my I would drop my pants if it would get a laugh. <laughs> you know what I Yeah. But I yeah, I I, I in the beginning, in the very, very beginning, like when I was a, a month doing stand-up, mm-hmm. I bombed every night for a year. Mm. And it wasn't until John Savage, the actor, came in to the comedy store one night, and he said, and he saw my set, and he pulled me aside and he said, you're really good. And I said, I am? <laughs> <laughs> And he said, yeah, you really are. And from that moment on, I never bombed again. Ah. Because I had the self-confidence. I didn't have the self-confidence before. And doing stand-up is all about confidence. Right. Yeah. If you, if the audience senses your vulnerability, then you're dead in the water. And the analogy that I use is in the cartoons, when the guy drops off a ladder and hits the ground, and he breaks up into a million pieces, then he pulls himself back together, we laugh. Mm -hmm. Because that's the release. But if he falls off the ladder, and he lies there in a pool of blood, we go, ooh, that's not not comedy. Mm -hmm. Comedy is always the release. And it's obviously an important thing, and I feel like it's the hardest art that there is to do, and yet I I keep going back to Ron's video of you, and you just fall into it. I I don't think there is ever a situation you could be put into that you couldn't just joke your way out of it. Yeah, it's – I don't want – I hate talking about myself because – it, it you sound so self so smug and self satisfying, mm-hmm. but it, it this is with me. It's simply a fact. I just have been given a gift of being able to make a joke out of almost anything, mm-hmm. almost anything. I I was at my best friend's father's funeral, and it was he was like a father to me. The guy who passed away, mm-hmm. and. He was a military guy, and they they had a military guard there, and they had the flag, and they were folding the flag, and it took them it took them fifteen minutes to fold the flag, and <laughs> to no one, I just said, "That's how I fold my sheets," and the entire and the entire place turned around and went, "Blue Stein." <laughs> But they laughed. Yeah, of course. It's funny. All right, here's the best example of it. My mother passed away on Tuesday. My uh, the previous Thursday, my uh, or the preceding Thursday, 
my aunt passed away. So I went to the funeral home and the funeral director said to me, oh, this has been a very tough week for you. I went, yeah, it really has been so much. We lost two people. And he said, okay, now what can we do for you? And I said, oh, I'll just have what my cousin had. <laughs> and he just looked at me. And, and and then he said, and then we were talking more, and he said, how would you like to pay for this? And I said, I have a group on. <laughs> but and of course nobody laughed but I just did it for myself oh you know? yeah and then about six weeks later my, my aunt and my mother are buried next to each other in crypts in the wall mm -hmm. and he called and he said your aunt's tomb is going to say her name and her date of birth and the date of death and then underneath is going to say mother grandmother, aunt, and friend. What would you like your mothers to say? And I said, see other crypt. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this long silence. And he said, really? <laughs> I said, no. Oh, man, that's great. And I'm totally on board with you for that. I, I remember when my my grandmother passed away, we were driving to the cemetery. And I think I was, I don't know, I was probably 20-something. And somebody asked in the limo that we were in, what would you want to have on your tombstone? And I said, I told you I was sick. And we all got out of the limo just cracking up. And yeah, on mine, it's going to say willing to sublet. Yeah. <laughs> when my stepfather died, my mother and I had a tumultuous relationship. Mm. She was not on board with me being in show business and she did everything in her power to stop it and negate it and negate me as a person, as mm. a human being. And my stepfather died and I flew back to Boston for the funeral. And we got, we went through the service and we went outside to get in the limo and everybody got in a limo and there was no room for me. <laughs> She'd forgotten a place for me in the car. And so the limos are pulling away from the curb. And I, I said to the hearse driver, can I go with you? So I was driving with the casket and one of my aunts pulled up and she said, Stevie, do you have a ride? And I said, yeah, I'm going with Manny, <laughs> who was my stepfather. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, Throw some dirt yeah. on me and we'll be done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll be done. We'll be done. So let's back up a I little mean, bit. The, yeah. What got, what started you into doing stand up? I was an assistant buyer at the May Company in Budget Ladies Handbags. So it's a natural segue into show business. <laughs> and But I had moved to California and I was living in Hollywood in one of these apartment buildings that has a swimming pool in the center and all the apartments look into the center. So everyone sent, would gravitate toward the middle and sit around the pool. In the building lived Dave Madden, who was mm -hmm. Reuben on the Partridge family. Mm -hmm. And he would hear me making people laugh because I always had this ability to make people laugh. Mm -hmm. He would hear me and he pulled me aside one day and he said, this new club that just opened, it's called the comedy store and you should go down there. And sitting next to me at the time was Albert Hammond, who was a songwriter at the time, but has since won an Emmy and is in the songwriters hall of fame. And he said to me, Steve, he's right. You should do it. So Albert Hammond and David Madden, Dave Madden took me to the comedy store. And I walked in the first night and sat and watched the people on stage and said, I can do that. I can do that. Mm -hmm. And I came back the next week with some routines I had written. And I got off stage and Sammy Shore came over to me and said, you keep coming back. You have the sound. Ah. You have now if 
he hadn't said anything to me, I probably would have gone home and gone to the back to the May company Mm -hmm. and become a divisional manager by this time. (laughs) And, but he did, and he gave me encouragement and that, and I came back every night for two years and I was one of the original comedians who started the comedy store. Wow. And even before Mitzi. Mitzi was married to Sammy at the time. Right. Yeah. But Sammy ran it first and then, uh, Sammy ran it first. But the club opened up to, uh, you know, with huge crowds because everybody in show business came to hang out at the comedy store to be seen and to be on stage. And what was happening was Sammy was giving everybody drinks, the the comics who were there, and they were drinking and they were drinking him out of house and home. <laughs> so he was losing money on the club and... At the same time, the crowds began, began to diminish because the, the newness had worn off mm-hmm. and people weren't coming. And so Mitzi and Sammy were getting a divorce and Mitzi got the club in the divorce. And she was the one who said, you need to s- structure the show so that the audience knows that at nine o'clock we'll be on and at 10 o'clock so-and-so will be on. And she was the one who devised the light over the picture. Mm. She was the one who devised getting the show scheduled. And and it took off from there. And then Jimmy Walker had just gotten good times. Mm. And part of his deal was that Tandem was pay for writers to write for his stand-up. So Jimmy would bring six writers, five writers to the comedy store every night. And he would go on stage and he would be the main draw. And that's when the word got out that you could see famous people on television at the comedy store. And then Richard Pryor came and then Red Fox came and then Flip Wilson came and then we were off and running. Do you feel like that the that the experience you got from the comedy store was what kept you in comedy? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Everything I learned about doing stand-up, I learned at the comedy store. Mm -hmm. I had never done stand-up. I had always been funny. I'd always been the funny one, Mm -hmm. but I had never done stand-up before. Mm -hmm. And I believe you're the person who put Dreesen up when he first got to L.A. Is that right? Tom slept in my house when he first got As a matter of fact, he wrote a joke about me when he was standing there. He said... He has a friend who alphabetizes their laundry, and that's because <laughs> that's because I'm very anal, and I still am to this day. I must have everything organized, and I talk about that in my new book, Point of Pines. Point of Pines is it's, it's an area in Massachusetts where I grew up and where I I learned about what love is about a, from a family. You uh-huh. know, because my original family, my my parents were a nightmare. They were dysfunctional. They fought. They were violent. I was, I, we ended up homeless. It was a nightmare. But at the Point of Pines, I learned what love was. And I wrote this as a tribute to those people. And it's different from my other book because Memoir of a Nobody is strictly comedy. One essay after another about about opening for Donna Summer, about mm. opening for Barry Manilow, about opening for Kenny Loggins, what went on backstage, who was an asshole, who wasn't. <laughs> and that's a totally different kind of book than Point of Pines. But it's been out a week, and it's already gotten 25-star reviews. Oh, that's so, great. Um, so Yeah, the memoir, listen, Memoir of a Nobody has 96 five-star reviews on Amazon. And that came out in 2011, is that right? That came out in 20, Memoir of a Nobody, must be three years ago. Okay, it's, please, it's so hard to type with a gun in my mouth, came out earlier. Yeah. Actually, those two books are the same book. Okay. Uh, It's so hard to type with a gun in my mouth, was self-published, and it did so well 
that I had a publisher picked it up, but he didn't want to publish a book with gun in the title. <laughs> so I changed it to memoir of a nobody. Okay. Okay. So thinking about how you are, you obviously take a comedic and, and a bit of, I, I, I don't want to say sarcastic, but you take a little bit of a cynical view of things. And then you come up with a book called Point of Pines where you found out what love is all about. Did it take you that long? Yeah, it did. And it, had, it, it took my parents' passing that, that freed me from, because... Up until that time, I would say X, Y, and Z happened. And my mother would say, no, it never happened. It didn't happen like that. Yeah. And so I, I grew up thinking there was, I was insane. There was something wrong with me. <laughs> when she left, when she died, I was able to be my own person for the first time. And people surrounding me came and validated my feelings. You know, mm -hmm. validate, yeah, saying, yes, I saw it. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. you know? So obviously so. coming from the background that you have with no validation, you need the validation, and comedy was a release for that. Do you feel like if you were brought up in a normal, happy family that you would be a comedian? No, absolutely not. There is... The way I describe it, because I was sitting with a group of comedians, maybe 10 of us, and I said, just said, anybody have a trauma in their childhood? And 10 hands went up. Mm -hmm. One was crippled and in a cast from his chest to his legs as a child. The other father died. A mother died. They had an illness. There was some trauma that left them with that hole in their soul which needed to be filled. And for me, the reason I'm no longer doing stand-up and, and I'm more behind the scenes is because that hole has been filled. Mm. I no longer, there is no longer a need. You know, Howie Mandel said to me one day, called me up and he said, come on, this goes back when, just before, just after he got sane elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And he said, come on, I'm going to the comedy store tonight. And I said, why? <laughs> you have a series. And he said, oh, I have to. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, at that very moment, I knew that I didn't have to. That whatever the need had been, it had been removed from me. And I had, quote, unquote, healed mm -hmm. that I didn't have to do it anymore. But I continued to do it for years later. I just... The, the gusto, the joy was out of it for me. And that's when I went to playwriting and TV writing and writing these books, the mm -hmm. four books. Boy, that's very telling. So do you feel like every comic that's working today still needs to find what you found? I can't speak for every comic working today. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Most of them are so neurotic and sick that they wouldn't. <laughs> be able to to <laughs> validate what my what I just said. Uh-huh. Did you did you get into the whole drug culture that was going on there at the comedy store? Get into it. I started it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course I did. And I'm sober now 39 it'll be 38 years in April. Mm -hmm. And so I was right in the thick of it in the 70s. Who wasn't in mm -hmm. the 70s? People who were born in the 80s. That's who <laughs> but, yeah. But I found myself going from someone who said, I never, I never work stoned to working stoned and then saying, I never drive stoned and then driving stoned. And then I, and I thought, gee, if I've come this far, if I slipped this far in such a short period of time, where am I going to be in 10 years? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I started going to AA and I've been sober ever since 39 years, 38 years. I was going to tell you something, but now it's completely slipped my mind. That's old age. That's another <laughs> reason I don't do stand up anymore. I can't remember from one minute to the next. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, BTV buddies, we're sponsored by Podcorn. 
If you've ever listened to a big name podcast, you know they have a lot of sponsors. The reason why brands choose to advertise on podcasts is that podcast advertising is up to three times more effective than TV, print, or radio advertising. If you're a brand and you checked out advertising on those big name podcasts, you found out that the cost may be way outside your budget. And if you're a podcast that would like to get some of that ad revenue, you found out that unless you have at least 10,000 listens per episode, advertisers won't even talk to you. Podcorn came about as a solution for advertisers with any budget from a hundred bucks to a million bucks and podcasters with listeners in the hundreds or in the millions. Here's how it works. If you're an advertiser, go to podcorn.com and sign up as an advertiser. You enter in pertinent information about your brand and the message you want podcasts to communicate for you. You can then choose what type of advertising you'd like. You can get a host-read ad, an interview, a topical discussion, or all of the above. Then you can make your sponsorship live and wait for podcasters to give you their pitch. You decide who you want to work with. If you have a podcast, go to podcorn.com and register as a podcast. You'll create a profile with info about your podcast and the people who listen. Then you can start browsing sponsorship opportunities right away. As an advertiser or podcast, you communicate directly about the ad. There is no middle person. This is so easy you wouldn't believe it until you go to Podcorn and sign up. Guess where I got this sponsorship? Podcorn. I'm being paid to read this ad right now, and I'm just a little independent podcast. Check out the show notes for a direct link to Podcorn and sign up today. I know I'm glad I did. Hey, BTB buddies, you know I'm always on the hunt for cool independent podcasts to share with you. Well, I found one in the Pop Culture Show. The Pop Culture Show is your hosts, Barnes, Leslie, and Cubby. They take a deep dive into the pop culture of now. The Pop Culture Show team talks about the news of the week, celebrity gossip, TV shows, music, and whatever else is going on in the world. They also get to interview some pretty big names like Jewel, Dr. Oz, and Lisa Loeb. I have to say, I like their unique take on all the topics they take on from behind the scenes on Family Feud to cat translation apps. If you want to break from the hard news and want to laugh and learn a little, the Pop Culture Podcast is a good one to check out. Now, if you're listening to me, you know how easy it is to listen to the Pop Culture Podcast. Just type it in on any podcast app and click subscribe. Check out their social media for extra content and watch episodes on YouTube. Head over to thepopcultureshow.com or just click the link in the show notes to find out more about this great show. It's a good one. Let's talk about the people that you came up with and the way comedy is today. What are the differences between, say, the comics that were at the comedy store in the 70s and the way comedy is today? Okay, that's a great question because it's a very simple answer. Mm -hmm. In the 70s, the comics all had idols from the 60s and the 50s. Mm -hmm. And those guys, Jack Benny, uh, Milton Berle, Jackie Gleason, Danny Kaye, all those guys, they had learned how to do comedy in vaudeville, which led them to films, and they... They learned their craft. They learned their craft, period. Mm -hmm. They learned it in Volbid. They practiced it in, in the movies and in television. And so we were learning our craft from people who had learned their craft from people who had really learned their craft. Mm -hmm. Today, they, they don't have those people. Mm -hmm. And the, the comedians are all learning from each other. And what you end up with is a generic sound that every comic has coming up now. They all sound the same. They all deliver the same. They all talk about the same material. They all talk like they sound like they should be funny, mm -hmm. but they're not funny. Nobody makes you think. There are exceptions. John Mulrooney. Uh, yeah. John Mulrooney from Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. I get Mulaney. John Mulaney. Yeah. I get Mulrooney and Mulaney. Mm -hmm. I'm a Jew. What do you want from me? John Mulaney. <laughs> he he's absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely brilliant. He's the funniest. He's a funny. I love this guy. Mm -hmm. He is hilarious. He, with he, his concepts. Yeah, he tells a story know, and he paints a picture. 
he tells a story, he paints a picture, but he tells it in such a way that's different. And that's the answer. That's the the, re, the success. The answer to success in stand-up is you must be different from the pack. And all these guys sound the same. Mm-hmm. I watch these comedy specials on Netflix and all those, and I, I want to vomit. Uh-huh. They're not funny. Yeah. They are not, but they, they deliver. They should be funny. They have the self-confidence that they're funny, but they're not funny. If the audience is sweetened and I'm sitting at home or people are sitting at home and they're not laughing, they're not funny. And I don't know how the hell these people get special. I am totally on board with you. I can't tell you how many I've watched and I've turned off after 10 minutes because I can't give up my time. Uh, there, uh, the, there's another woman. African American, lesbian, red hair. Come on, help me. You know who she's. It's not, she it's was, not uh, uh, Leslie Jordan, is it? No, that Leslie Jordan is a man. There's is it? I I think the last time I looked, wasn't that Leslie Jordan a character on Will and Grace? Yes, but there's another one. Oh, all right. No, that wouldn't be it. She's so funny. She's married. She talks about being married to a white woman, and they have two white kids, and she's the only black person in the family. And I can't think. Well, anyways, she's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. As a matter of fact, she's so brilliant. I was channel surfing and stopped dead in my tracks Mm -hmm. because not only is she funny, but she paints the picture so that the audience can be there with her mm-hmm. and can laugh along with her. Mm-hmm. She's just brilliant. I love her. Mm-hmm. I love her. And Elaine Boozler is hilarious. Yeah. Kathy Ladman is hilarious. Who else uh, do I like? Howie Mandel. I love Howie. Mm-hmm. I love Howie because he's the real deal. Right. He is the real deal. He is not only a comedian, but he's an actor, he's a producer, he's inventive, he's a style setter, he is the real deal. Mm -hmm. One of the things, talking about comedy today, I feel like it's all very, if you're talking in musical terms, it's all very staccato, and Mm -hmm. it's, I feel like there's nothing new in comedy because everything well, comes that's what, I'm, that, that's what i'm saying right there's nothing new they all sound the same yeah everyone's saying the same thing they're all talking about the same relationships oh who gives a hell about your relationship come up if you're going to talk about a relationship think come up with something new something mm-hmm. different yeah you know it's like everybody doing an airline joke it's been done and you're just putting a new paint job on it and it's not your stuff so i agree with that and and again they learn from other people they hear other people do it and they think oh that that got a laugh that's a good that's a good area i'll write some new stuff about that but it's not new because we've already heard about it we've already talked about it so they're learning from each other did you ever collaborate with anybody on any any of your jokes randy kirby who was uh, the funniest human being on the face of the earth would go in the very beginning, would go on the road with me and we would write and Randy would say something and it wouldn't be a joke, but the essence of what he said would inspire me mm-hmm. to go on stage and make it a joke. And so that's the only person I ever worked with, with the exception of Mary Willard. She and I were a writing team we worked on we worked for Norman Lear together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary was married to Fred Willard. I miss Fred. <sighs> I miss I miss them both. Talk about two human beings who touched someone's lives for forty years. Mm-hmm. Fred and Mary would throw a Christmas party every year that we, and they would invite just the creme de la creme of comedy. And it was a love fest. Mm-hmm. It was an absolute love fest. And Mary ran it, and we sang we came Christmas carols. And, of course, the thing was to make everybody laugh. And the, the great thing was, every year this happened, we'd all be sitting around in the living room, 
and Joanne Worley would, would have been at the party, and she's there. And then we're sitting around, and we're singing Christmas carols, and suddenly Fred will get up and go, oh, look, there's someone at the window. And Joanne Worley would be outside tapping on the window. And <laughs> and Fred would say, Joanne, Joanne, come in. And Joanne would whirl it. She'd, she'd go, hello. <laughs> uh, Fred, I was just in the neighborhood and I heard the singing and I thought I'd stop by. And as luck would have it, I brought my piano player. And she had. She brought her piano. And then the piano player would go to the piano and Joanne would do some hilarious song. But it was the same thing for 40 years. Uh-huh. Every year. It was, and then one year, so the 12 Nights of Christmas were sung. And the big thing was Five Golden Rings. Mm-hmm. You had to do something hilarious on Five Golden Rings. One year, I ran into the kitchen and got their upright vacuum cleaner, plugged it in, and when 12 Golden Rings came in, I came out and vacuumed in the middle of the song, which just brought Mary, just got hysterical laughing. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. So thinking about comedy from the 70s versus today do you feel like the comedy was okay first off it was very competitive especially at the comedy store to the point of being cutthroat and do you feel like it was more of a meritocracy back in the day than it is now oh you're gonna you're gonna throw meritocracy well you can't even pronounce the damn meritocracy which, yeah, which, yeah, which means you you get ahead by merit rather than by oh, any other means. Yeah, yeah. It, listen, there's no meritocracy in show business. There are people who are stars today who sat at the comedy store for years, never got a laugh once, <laughs> got one lucky break, and then they're and there. And that's not that is not sour grapes. Mm-hmm. That is the truth. There's one particular person I think of who was, she was on a plane with nobody else was doing. She was so different than everybody else. And the audience would stare at her like she was a painting. Mm-hmm. You know, 15 minutes of silence. I, at one point during her set, I came in and I said, I'd like to do, I'd like to return a book. It was so quiet. It was like a library. And she got she got seen one night by a producer. She got put in a movie, Instant Star. Wow. You know? And then there are people who bang their head against their wall for 20 years, 30 years, mm-hmm. and have nothing, and have no recognition. I can give you a list of people right now you've never heard of who've been working, doing stand-up forever, and with no recognition. And for no apparent reason. Mm -hmm. It's just being at the right place at the right time. And a lot of the people at the comedy store really used it as the training ground it should become. For instance, Richard Pryor, I, I hear stories of him just shitting the bed for he would stand up there for an hour and get nothing and he would turn that hour into a new special because he worked it. Yeah, look, I, I saw David Brenner come up at the comedy store every night with a joke and each night try a different word to see which one would get it to work. Mm-hmm. It's a craft. It is absolutely a craft mm-hmm. and you have to learn how to do it. And unfortunately, most of the people today haven't learned how to do it. They've just learned how to grab for the gusto, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. And yeah, you, you talk about David Brenner, who I would compare to Seinfeld, who was very analytical about the words and the meter and all that. And then you've got yourself, who's such an improv, improv, improv soul that yeah. is, I'm sorry, I've been drinking, but that is the moment. And you don't worry about the words so much, but yet you're able to put them in. There's, I, there's not very many people who do that coming along the way. It was well, like I you, mean, Robin Williams did it, and Paula Poundstone is yeah. brilliant at it. Oh, there's one other guy who talks to the audience. He used he used to write for he was the head writer for Jay Leno, 
and I can't think of his name. And it's not because they're not important people. It's just because I can't remember where I parked my car and <laughs> the garage is attached. Is I attached know how you feel. The house. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. When you meet them in public and go, hey, uh-huh. and it's nothing's there. You know? Yeah. I had Go the ahead. pleasure of seeing Paula Poundstone last year, and it, it she's cool. she's brilliant. She's fantastic, she's absolutely, and, absolutely brilliant. And I did not know that she was such a crowd work person. Obviously, I had seen her in television specials and stuff like that, and saw her mm-hmm. act, but that act was not so much crowd work. But she just mastered. Well, the thing is, when when you're doing a talk show. They do not want you to work the crowd. Oh, right. Yeah. That is, they want seven minutes and they know that, that the toilet is the last word and they go to commercial. Mm-hmm. They don't want, they, and so Paula and myself and anybody else who works the crowd has a, had a lot of trouble getting on those shows because our style was different than, say, Adresens, who was specifically seven minutes. He really crafts. Is, is set. Mm-hmm. So it was different. But Paula had the best job, absolutely made me. Paula was, had been involved in a, in a lawsuit and she was in the hole for about a million dollars for legal fees. And she said, when you're in debt to a, for a million dollars, things become, become in perspective. For instance, my kid says, mom, can we go to Disney World? And I say, I don't see why not. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. Yep. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> because it's so true. Yep. When you're in the debt for a million dollars, what's another 300 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a drop in the bucket, baby. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So let's talk about the best and worst advice you got as a comic coming up. What was the best advice you got? All right. No, I'll just start with the worst. Okay. The worst advice was given to me by Rudy DeLuca, who was a partner with Sammy Shore at the Comedy Store. Mm -hmm. And he later went on to work with Mel Brooks. So he's got got comedy chops. His Mm -hmm. advice to me was, you talk too fast. You can't, you have to stop. You must not always, because I have a very rapid fire delivery. You do. I'll always, that can't, it comes from fear of silence. If I feel if, if they get away from me, then they won't laugh. I'll lose them. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly talking to get, so the next night I went up and did what Rudy said and completely went in the toilet. Completely. Mm-hmm. And went into the toilet for a year after that. Every night, I lost it until John Savage came in and said, you're really good. And then I got my confidence back. Mm-hmm. That was the worst advice. The best advice was time heals all wounds. Mm. And that was my agent told me that mm-hmm. after I had gotten had some really personal tragedy and was falling apart Mm -hmm. and he said time heals all wounds and it made me understand that i may be you know feeling badly now but i will feel better and i got out of it Mm -hmm. i got out of it do you feel like your perseverance is a flip off to some people Say that again to my a flip off. Yeah, like a big f you. To who? To to anybody who uh, doubted you, anybody that was a well, naysayer. Of I've seen so many comedians who struggled to get to the top, and then got to the top, and then became major assholes, just major conceited, abusing, awful a- a- assholes, mm-hmm. and. I understand it. I could never be that way. Uh, that's just not my makeup. But yeah, especially to my mother, mm. my mother who, who who said to to actually said to a friend, "I just don't find him funny," <laughs> and 
who said in front of a group of my people, of my, my friends, why did you write a book? Nobody cares about your life. <laughs> wow. That's verbatim. And I turned around to look at my friends who, whose mouths were a gap. They uh -huh. were just, could not believe. So, you know, when I sit here in my 4,000 square foot house with the swimming pool, and I look at my stock portfolio, I say, yeah, I wish my mother was around so I could say, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. If somebody was, say I'm a brand new comedian and I come to you for advice, what would you tell a comedian today that they should do to stand out from all the rest of the comedians and be noticed and be a good comedian? Work nude. Okay. <laughs> no, you know, that. what you're asking me is about attitude. Uh -huh. And attitude is what, how a comedian sees the world. Joan Rivers was, Phyllis Diller was ugly. Jack Benny was cheap. Mm -hmm. Seinfeld is an observer. David Brenner is an observer. Mm -hmm. That's their attitude. That's how they see the world. It takes years for a comedian to find that attitude. Mm -hmm. Some people are born with it. They're just, they just have natural attitude and it just comes to them naturally. But some have to develop one. And the, the only way they can do it is to do the work. Mm -hmm. Just get up every night and work. Mm -hmm. Very good advice. So let's get a little bit deeper into your the new book, The Point of Pines, A Horrible Childhood in a Wonderful Place. Mm -hmm. you, you say this is the one that you finally found some peace and some happiness. Who are the people that you met that put you into this place? My mom had these high school friends, two sisters, and they were her closest and dearest friends in high school. Mm -hmm. And when I grew up, when I was born, I would call them my aunts. They were Auntie Edie and Auntie Emmy. Mm -hmm. And these, those women, their husbands and their children became my family, the family that I always wanted. Mm -hmm. And when the book came out, of course, a lot of those people from the Pines started reading it. And they have all contacted me to, to say how. I hit it right on the money. Mm -hmm. But I got an email today from a guy who said that he wanted me to know that he'd been going through some medical problems and was very depressed and had a very horrific childhood. And he read The Point of Pines and he was inspired and lifted. And that she, he said that he, I, reading the book helped him in healing. And that was better than a standing ovation. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, my other book, I have another book called Take My Prostate, Please. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that book because I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I went through the experience. And every day I would sit down and I would write what happened that day. And it became a book that I thought would be helpful to Women whose husbands are going through prostate cancer or men who are, are experiencing prostate cancer. And, of course, I did it with a little bit of humor mm -hmm. because that's how I see everything. So all the other books are humor. Point of Pines is rather is a serious book. Mm -hmm. And I said to a friend, there's not a joke in it. And she said, I found three, uh. which made me laugh, which made <laughs> me laugh. She's. Because she said, even when you're not writing funny, you write funny. Right. And right. I thought, that's funny. That's true. Yeah. It's in your DNA. So you just can't yeah. get away from it. If you want to talk about DNA, listen to this story. So I have a Russian travel agent. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him in one day and I said, I have all Russian relatives. All my grandparents are from Russia. He said, where? And I said, Odessa. And he said, then you must have a good sense of humor. Oh. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Odessans are known for this sense of humor. And over the centuries, there's been a comedy festival that goes back to the medieval times. And I said, do you know what I do for a living? He said, no. And I told him, he said, that makes perfect sense. <laughs>
It's definitely some. And and when I think about it, my cousins on the Bluestein side, uh-huh. they all have my sense of humor. Uh-huh. My cousin David, my cousin Bobby, my aunt Edie, my uncle Sam, my father. We all had the same sense of humor. Oh, that's great. And it's great that you could take that and make a career out of it. Yeah. And that, what's interesting is I made a career out of it. Now, my cousin David and my cousin Bobby didn't. Mm-hmm. They have the same sense of humor because they had solid upbringing, a mm-hmm. solid family, familial upbringing. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I saw violence and anger and hatred, and there was something missing that led me to think that I needed to stand on stage to be validated Mm -hmm. in the beginning. There's something that's been uh, on my mind since you said it. So you say you've got ADHD, which is, it's very prevalent among comedians. And Mm. a lot of my talk to suffer from that. How are you able to sit yourself down and write a book when you are suffering from that? I get up at six o'clock in the morning and I write for two hours. Mm -hmm. And it's like almost at that early hour, sometimes I get up at four o'clock in the morning at that early hour. It's like the motor hasn't kicked in yet. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And then I'll be writing and just go, I can't stand here another minute. Yeah. And have to get up and leave. Mm -hmm. And I, the first time I realized that I had this was right after I graduated college and I was looking for a job and I put the New York times down on the floor and I was looking through the help wanted ad and I was scanning the ads and I just couldn't, I couldn't focus. I couldn't, I couldn't see what was, and I had a, what I had to do was cut a little hole in the three by five card and put it over the ad uh. and slide it down so it would block out all the other information mm-hmm. so that it, because there was too much information going in and it, it, it was screwing up my brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, have some of the same thing and it seems to get worse as you get older for some reason. Yeah, it is. It's much, much worse now. Look, this is my life. The Coachella Valley comedy Fester contacted me and they were, they said, we'd like to honor you this year at the Coachella Valley festival. Mm -hmm. And I was beyond gratified. Mm -hmm. I was just thrilled. And then the, the COVID happened to the, the Coachella Valley Comedy Festival was canceled, mm-hmm. and I never heard anything else. This is the story of my life. Yeah, yeah, it's it, that's a comedian's life. So that's yeah, just really it goes. Really. Well, I I have to say that I'm in a place where I need to read the Point of Pine, so I'm definitely going to get it for myself. And I see Great. that's available on Amazon and probably a lot of other booksellers. But check, folks, yeah, check. It, it, if you go to stevebluestein.biz B-I-Z forward slash book all my books are there and you can link it'll link you to Amazon or Apple Books Mm -hmm. or Kindle because they're all available on Amazon Apple or Kindle okay Everybody that's listening, that'll be in the show notes. So make sure you check out the show notes and you can go right there and pick up any of Steve's great books. And I I tell you, Steve, it's been really great talking to you. I, I try to make it about the guest and I had to talk about Dreesen a little bit because he was actually the first guest I had on the podcast. And I he was one of the first comics I ever saw in my life. I'm a young 56 and I saw him on the Mike Douglas show and he was one of the first guys I saw. And he was my guy. I used to watch a TV guide and see where he was going to be and watch him. And, oh, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Tom's a great guy. Yeah. Fantastic guy. And I just got to say, talking to you is, it's one of the high points because you guys paved the way and I don't think anybody has been able to replicate what came out of the comedy store. And I don't think anybody really will unless we have a complete meltdown of 
of comedy and then rebuild it from the beginning. I hope I'm not there for it. I could I don't think I could live through it twice. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for paving the way and thank you so much for spending an hour with me. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's my from pleasure. You. Anytime. Thank you, Steve. Thank you.